Uh, for our message, we're going to start going through um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is going to take us, you know, a couple months to kind of go through um, the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and we really just kind of, you know, we all prayed and we talked about it. And we just had a heart of we really wanted to, to spend some time and just pick a section of Scripture and go through that section of Scripture. And so um, and preparing for it this week, it was, I mean, it was, it was exciting. It's been maybe four years since I've done this of like just let's pick a section of scripture and go through it together and really iron sharpen iron let's learn what Jesus has for it and it's not that you know preaching topically is wrong you know I do it all the time um, but it's it's almost like stretching a different muscle you know and so when we come to the word and we go you know Jesus we're just going to go through uh, you know a book of the Bible or a large section and just we're really going to stretch ourselves because you're you deal with things, one, you deal with things in context. And not that we're, always, we're not always striving to, to deal in context. You know, when we preach topically, we want to take a, a single scripture and faithfully in context talk about it. Um, but you really stretch to it even more when we say, hey, we're going to go line by line um, through a larger section of scripture. And so that's our heart really as we come to, um, to this. And so we kind of know, we, we knew we wanted to be central in the Gospels. And so we kind of prayed through it and felt like, you know, Sermon on the Mount was a great place to really dig down deep and, and look, and it, and it is. And so today I just kind of want to, um, to really kind of dig deep and understand as a whole the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll start breaking down and going into it. So um, I think what, what I want to do today is we're going to go through kind of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to cover the Beatitudes. Um, and so um, I'm going to read just kind of this first chunk of Scripture and that's in Matthew chapter 5, is where the Sermon on the Mount starts. Um, so I'll read scripture and we'll kind of go back and talk about the overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount and we'll dig back into um, the Beatitudes. So in verse 1 it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so as we kind of uh, see this beginning, the very first line that we see is seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain and he sat down with his and his disciples came to him. And so kind of contextually where we're at with the Sermon on the Mount is here in Matthew, this is really early on in the ministry of Jesus. So if you look through kind of the chronological order of, of Matthew, that we start with the birth of Jesus, and, and then we kind of go to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, then he calls his disciples, and then he almost immediately goes into the Sermon on the Mount. So he calls his disciples, does a few little miracles, and it says the crowds begin to follow him, and as the crowds follow him, that's when he kind of retreats almost um, to the mount and he sits down 
Uh, and I just imagine the disciples come up and then as people hear him, you know, they're just drawn into this teaching of Jesus. And so um, I, I want to kind of set kind of an overarching look at how do we approach the Sermon on the Mount? How do we look at its teaching? How do we interact with it um, as believers? Because when we talk about the Bible, we have to really kind of do two things when we approach Scripture. Is The first thing is we have to seek to understand contextually what does this mean? What are they, they talking about? In other words, a lot of times we come to Scripture and we move straight to the second part. So the second part is not what it's doing contextually, not what it's doing in the moment, but what is it speaking to me 2,000 years later in my walk in Christianity? Because it kind of has a dual purpose and meaning most times. But a lot of times we skip over the fact that this was a real message spoken by Jesus to a real group of people who had their own culture, own understanding, own background, own beliefs, they brought into the understanding. So a lot of times um, we can not think about the context, not think about the people or the, the history behind it, and we take meanings away from Scripture that aren't really there or would be drastically different from how it would be understood at the time. And so I know for me, a lot of times as a kid, uh, the way I approach the Sermon on the Mount or kind of understand it as this Here's this big long list of do's and don'ts that Jesus is giving to show me um, I really suck at this and I'm not worthy. Uh, and that's kind of how I approach it is like, man, I just, I'm not going to interact with it all that much because it's just this list of, Paul, here's all the ways you're not living up. Aren't you thankful to have Jesus? And so I would approach it and go, you know, like, yep, 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 fail all of those. And I don't approach it like almost like the Ten Commandments. Here's the, do, here's the checklist. Here's how we look at this. And so the more I've, I've looked at this and heard other people teach on it, um, I, I get where that comes from, but understanding that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who would have no concept of that, who would have no understanding of that, that our, our, us taking it in that way would be completely different from how it was delivered in the moment. And so as I've looked at, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, um, because really what I want us to take away from it is, uh, is, is two main things. So as we look to understand the Sermon on the Mount, um, one, um, I think we need to, to focus on kind of the theme for it in the moment because that speaks to us. And the theme for it in the moment, as we go through it, we're going to see um, Jesus is really kind of pushing on people that as they think about God and as they think about the way God is and the way we need to act and serve God, it's more about our heart than just our actions, right? So do we actually believe is our heart behind the way we live, not are we just living to prove a point? Are we just living to, are we checking the boxes or is there belief and meaning behind our actions? And so this would have been uh, really a radical view for those that were hearing this because the Jews, you know, the, the Israelites, they were used to the structure of it, of the Old Testament and the law. And in a couple weeks, we'll kind of really get more into the law. So I'm not going to dig all that up right now because um, that deals with our subject in a couple weeks. Um, but they lived by the law. And so that's the 613 laws of the Old Testament, which were basically, here's how you should live. Okay, and it started with, uh, as they were uh, being delivered from Egypt, and Moses goes in the mountain, he brings the, the Ten Commandments. You know, um, don't kill, don't covet. There, you know, no other gods before the Lord your God. 
And so we have this list of things that the Israelites should follow, and immediately they break the rules. And so if you follow the kind of journey of Scripture through the law and through the books of the prophets and the history books in the Old Testament, you have this thing where the law, the 613 laws, you can't just turn and go to a page and it lists all of them at once. But really they're given out in the Old Testament of some laws are given, the Israelites break those laws, and we get stories of how they broke those laws. Then some more laws are given, then we get more stories of how the Israelites broke the new ones, then we get more. And so it's the slow revealing of those 613 laws. And each time in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and we look in, in the Kings and Chronicles, each time laws are explained and given, they're preceded by a story of how the Israelites broke those laws and didn't live up to that standard. And so we, we kind of get this, you know, almost the way we viewed or I used to view the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is giving all those laws and then I can look at my life as a story of how I didn't keep any of them. Um, and so as we're moving through scripture, um, Jesus is really trying to go at the heart of how the Israelites are used to approaching God, how his disciples, because really a lot of times we think that Jesus is speaking primarily to the crowds. But if we look back at that verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So who was he immediately speaking to? He was immediately speaking to his disciples. He was trying to train, here are my disciples that are, are following. I've called them out. They're going to be the ones that I hand over the church to. So they need to understand the kingdom. They need to understand when I talk about the kingdom, what am I talking about? What, uh, what am I, I, I speaking on? And so as we look at this, um, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, this is primarily going to reveal to us what it means to be Christ-like. And so for me, the Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of things I never hope to accomplish that I'm always going to fall short of and that I need grace. But the Sermon on the Mount for me is a, is a check-in. Am I becoming more Christ-like in my walk, in my being, who I am, in my personality, how I relate to people? Am I challenging myself? And so as we come to the Word, and the word reveals our shortcomings. It's not meant to condemn us, right? It's not meant to condemn us, but it's meant to challenge us. Because any condemnation in the word is gone the minute that we accept Christ. All right, so the, the law of the Old Testament reveals condemnation. Christ reveals the answer to that condemnation. And that once we accept Jesus, our sins are forgiven and, and we now live for him. And so the Sermon on the Mount reveals to us, it's that check-in. Am I, am I growing in my Christ-like nature? Am I growing in my walk? Am I, am I, is the Holy Spirit really building out in me what He's supposed to? And so as we approach the Scripture, what I want us to see is it's that check-in of are we growing in Christ? And so as Jesus begins that ministry in chapter 4, we see Him talk about the kingdom of heaven. I've come to bring the kingdom of heaven. As he sits down in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we get that picture of what the kingdom of heaven really means. And it's not one that is judged by our actions. It's one that's judged by our heart. Now, that doesn't mean it's easier. That actually means it's, it's a lot more difficult. It's, it's easy at times to fix my outward actions. You know, I don't know if, Y'all have kids. We have kids. And I've spent a lot of time going, fix your face. 
you know. <laughs> we're not really dialing down to the inner feelings and emotions there. We're just trying to get through the day without offending random people at the grocery store. So it's not, you know, fix your heart. It's like in the moment, it's fix your face because that's a much easier ask than to fix your heart on this issue. Really what, what Jesus is calling us to here is, is not to just fix our face, not just to, to tailor our actions, but he's asking us to tailor our hearts, you know, fix our motives. And so as we look at this, that's what we're going to see time and time again, that Jesus is going to boil down to this idea of we're going to move from a physical thinking to a spiritual thinking. Right? We're going to move from thinking of just in terms of outward actions to in terms of the inward desires that lead to those actions. And that's what really Jesus is kind of um, going to bring up here. And so I read this, the Sermon on the Mount is not simply a list of rules to follow. It is an invitation to live under grace and experience blessings and rewards from living Christ-like. So Christ-like is not just actions. It's not just in word, but it's in word and deed. It's not just what we do, but it's the motives behind what we do. And so we are going to look at that purpose. Can we be perfect? Um, no, no, we can't. We can't be perfect as God is perfect. But through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to grow in that Christ-like nature. We're going to grow in being more and more like Christ. So that's kind of as we go through this several-month process of going through the Sermon on the Mount, that's where we're going to hit time and time again. We're going to look at, okay, so what is Jesus boiling down here? What are we getting? What's the heart of the matter that he's speaking to, not just our actions? So we, we know some of the famous ones. So, you know, it's said, don't be, you know, uh, don't be angry. You know, don't, you know, to murder is one thing, but he's also saying if you're angry, that's also killing. That's also murder. Uh, and so Jesus is boiling down to not just your actions, but your thoughts and your heart. So we're going to look at that at each step. So we're going to dig down today and look at uh, really the Beatitudes. Uh, and that's how I was taught them as kids. Uh, as a kid was the Beatitudes to the point where I can remember as a kid, I thought blessed and blessed were two completely separate things. Um, the, the way they read that in the King James just really screwed me up for understanding and reading the word blessed for a long time. I always wanted to say blessed um, because that's how I remember them being recited in church. Um, but we're going to talk about what it means to be blessed. And so as we look at um, kind of how Jesus begins to teach and open up, um, you know, I almost wanted to go and look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount um, as we looked at this. Um, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the very last line, it goes in chapter 7, it talks about, and they were astounded because Jesus taught as one who had authority. And really what that means is the Israelites were used to, um, you know, no one really ever had an opinion of their own. It was always they would reference the opinion of rabbis. So it's almost like if we were having a conversation about the Bible and you never told me what you thought, but you always, well, Pastor Paul says this. Well, and then I would go, yeah, but Pastor Rex says this. Someone else would chime in and go, yeah, but, but my pastor says it this. And we would just argue not about what we believe, but what we've heard other pastors in the past say. And that's how they were kind of used to teaching um, the law at this point in time, is the rabbis really didn't teach a whole lot from themselves, 
but they would teach from what's called the Midrash. So they would teach from historical commentary on the Bible from other rabbis who had, for the most part, had already passed away at this point in time. So they were just arguing at end about, well, this rabbi saw it this way and this rabbi saw it this way. So this is how the people were used to hearing about the law. The law, the word of God had become something very disconnected from the heart and real life relationship. And it had become a very formal analytical study of who God was. To the point where we talk about the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And it wasn't just those 613 laws, but at the time that Jesus is speaking here, the rabbis had added hundreds of laws onto that 613 laws. So where a law would come in and say, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, the rabbi had distilled it down to a science of that means you can only walk this many steps. You can only do these things. So they would have 10, 15 laws of how to keep the Sabbath holy. So they had completely disconnected from the relationship of it. So when the people hear this, Jesus begins talking about being blessed all right, so this is, this is language they would understand. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's lots of language about being blessed. So if you look through the Psalms, there's lots of the Psalms begin with, blessed is the man who does this. So this is language that they're used to hearing. They're just not used to hearing anybody alive talking this way. This is all just referencing old people. So the fact that Jesus would come on the screen and speak with authority, why? Because we know he's the word. Um, it captivated them because it's something they hadn't heard before, that someone would come and speak from their own understanding, not from this rabbi or this rabbi or this rabbi. So it instantly began to, to draw them in. And so when we look at this word um, blessed, blessed are, uh, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. What is, what is Jesus talking about? And really in the Greek, this idea of blessed here that Jesus is speaking of we can think of it in a couple different ways, but really he's talking about, uh, I think sometimes when we think of blessing, we think if I do these things, Jesus will give me these things. Like it's an allowance. We have an allowance system in our house. So the kids have to do certain things if they, and then they get their allowance. You clean your room, you get your allowance. You don't act up, you get your allowance. And sometimes we approach blessings to God like this. So God, I was, you know, I was good this week. I was poor in spirit. I read my Bible. So you're supposed to give me these things, right? You know, I, I performed for you, so I'm supposed to have health, wealth, and prosperity now, right? And so we approach this in a very transactional manner, and that's not really at all the meaning that Jesus is trying to convey here. So really he's saying, you'll be happy if. You'll be peaceful and satisfied if. If, you, if this describes you, you, know, you, will, you will receive these things from God. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. So a real simple one to understand, blessed is those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So he's talking about in the kingdom that I'm bringing. Man, if you're in mourning, man, have peace. It's okay. You're going to have happiness because there's going to be comfort for you in that mourning process. So like Jimmy said, we're going to have trials. We're going to have hardships. We're going to have tribulations right now. But the good thing is we know two things. One, that Jesus will ultimately redeem all of that and come again and make everything new where we don't have to, to live with hurt. We don't have to live with sorrows. We don't have to have that mourning process. And two, while we're going through it, he won't abandon us, but he'll be there and he'll comfort us for us. 
So it's, it's like we have the, that kid or that spouse or that friend that's going through a tough time and nothing I can say, nothing I can do is going to remove that, that from it. When someone loses a loved one, there's nothing I can say as a pastor that's instantly going to fix that. All I can do is be there and comfort them. Be there for them. Reach out for them. Pray for them. Encourage them. You know, we can't take away that sting, but we can be that part of the body that encourages, that lifts up, that supports. And so when he's saying, bless, this is not a transactional thing. This is a, uh, this is a lifestyle. This is a character thing that he's saying, you will, you will live a good life. You will be happy if these are things that describe who you are. So as we look at this, I'm going to kind of divide our Beatitudes into two sections. And we're going to kind of dig through those two sections. And so um, the first are those that describe an inward position. So an inward attitude, an inward action of our heart. And those are going to lead to outward actions. So we have inward things that we uh, that he's saying, if you're, if you're this way inside of you or this way in your emotions and your thinking and your feeling, then it will lead to outward actions. And so we're going to kind of break down those two. So the first we're going to look at is those kind of inward thoughts, those inward feelings, those inward actions, that inward character that we have. So that's our blessed that are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are weak, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then those who are pure in heart. So we're talking about inward things that we're going to work on, that we're going to try to be like. And so the first one is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying by blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Um, uh, So Billy Graham said it this way, that the poor in spirit to him, um, he said that's talking about humility. So those that come with a, a humbleness in their spirit. In other words, we don't approach God of, I'm perfect, I deserve, or I've got it all figured out. But we approach God from a position of need. So being poor in spirit is, I am bankrupt in my spirit, Father. I need your blessing. I need your guidance. And so I see this in several ways as we kind of look. I think uh, David said it this way in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, it says, the sacrifices of God, in other words, the sacrifice that God accepts, that he desires, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So it's not saying that we come to God Oh, God, I can't do anything. But it's that we come with a, um, I'm going to remove my will, my desires, because in and of myself, I can do nothing. So it's an acknowledgement of the need that we have for God. And so when you really look at this, um, it makes sense of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if I come to God with pride, right, then then I've already received my reward. All right? I can't take part of his kingdom if I'm trying to put my kingdom in his kingdom. All right? I can't prefab build my home and just move it into God's neighborhood. That's not the way it works. All right? I've got to come to him. That God, I have nothing. What have you built for me? What, where, where can I stay? Can I stay in your guest room, Father? And so I think this is one that's really hard for us sometimes because... Uh, we have that uh, American exceptionalism where we want to do it. 
We want to be good enough. We want to be powerful enough. So we spend a lot of time writing and singing songs about our power, about what we can do. Um, you know, we, we try to distill Christianity down sometimes to, you know, specific, if I just say this, if I just say Jesus' name, that's some magical incantation that can make things happen. Uh, or we can't go to this pastor, we, we got to go to this pastor because they're the ones that have the revelation of power for this thing. And so we make it uh, Christianity, we distill it down to a power that we can contain uh, and we get to dispense out. And that's not really how it works. But it's when we come to God and we go, Father, I am nothing. I can do nothing apart from you. If you don't move, this is not going to happen. All right? If this is not your will, this is not going to happen. Uh, and so in the past, we've described it as the idea of a lot of times we bring our desire, our plan, our wants, our hopes, our dreams to God, and we go, God, bless this. This is awesome. Bless this. Instead of going, God, what are you doing? How are you moving? Where do you want me to come and fall in line with you? I heard an amazing talk from um, Phil Vischer. Um, so Phil Vischer created VeggieTales. And, uh, and so he had a heart for animation. Um, and he kind of grew up in a really religious family. And he grew up in a family where a lot of the conversation was, he had a, a grandfather who was a great evangelist, was what is your impact going to be on the world? How are you going to change the world around you? And so he kind of approached his life with that, and he started making these simple animations of vegetables telling uh, the story of Jesus, telling the story of the gospel. And he got really good at it. And slowly he started selling his DVDs in Christian bookstores, and it grew in popularity and grew in popularity and grew in popularity. And he, he went from just him on a computer designing. Uh, and, and it's amazing listening to him talk because he does all the voices. In the early days, all the voices are him and his wife. Um, and then he kind of adds people on as they go through. And, uh, and he gets to the point where he has like 920 employees working for him where he pays for animators to break off from Disney and Pixar and come work for him. He had the largest animation studio in the United States, in Nashville, Tennessee, as Big Idea Productions. And he said he got so focused on what he was doing, his dream, his desire. God bless my dream. God bless my desire. And he said through circumstances, uh, through downturns. He said they eventually reached the cap. They'd hit all the homeschool markets and there just was nowhere for them to go and expand. Then came, you know, a, a lawsuit with a distributor and he went bankrupt. And slowly said so his company started sinking and sinking and sinking until it was nothing. And he, the lawyers came in and sold everything he had where he has any of the vegetable stuff he owns, no rights to it anymore. It's all been purchased by other companies. And so he, he kind of went, what do you do? How do you live when God grants your biggest dream, your biggest desire, you succeed, and then it's all gone? How do you deal with that? And so he said he kind of came to this place where he realized that he desired his dream more than he desired God himself. And it became an idol for him. So he had to come to that place where he was poor in spirit. And when he was poor in spirit, he started realizing the more and more he started studying the word, the more and more time he started spending time alone with God, he said slowly the desire to be with God, the desire to hear from him 
e completely eclipsed his desire to have a design studio again, his desire to have his creations come out again. And it wasn't until that point that ideas started flowing back to him. But he had to reach that place of being poor in spirit. And when he was poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven completely opened up to him. Uh, I think the next three um, are best understood kind of together. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So I'm going to deal with that last one first. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, I can't remember his name, but he started the Bible Project. Um, they have amazing videos um, that kind of explain books of the Bible, explain concepts of Scripture. And he described righteousness as this, um, that it's right relationship. He said the most simple way you can define it is right relationship. And so a righteous act would be something that helps either protect or create right relationship, whether between each other or whether between us and God. And so when I move in righteousness, I'm, I'm moving in right relationship either with, between me and someone here or between me and God. And so that's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross for us because we had, uh, sin had, was a chasm so wide we could not correct that on our, our own. In other words, our righteous acts would never be enough to, bring, you know, to span the, the chasm between us and where God was. But Jesus could. So Jesus' death on the cross was that righteous act that allowed us to come back into right relationship and have righteousness with God. So we can look at righteousness as that right relationship. And so the idea is, have you ever been really thirsty? Have you ever been so thirsty that your mouth was dry, your lips were cracking, and you just really needed that glass of water? You needed something to quench that thirst. So he's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, um, for they shall be satisfied. So in, so in other words, blessed are those who want righteousness so bad that they, they strive for it. They desire it with their core. So if it says if they hunger and thirst for righteousness, that means they don't have it yet. So we're not necessarily talking about uh, our relationship between us and God because we have that. We don't have to strive for righteousness between us and God because Jesus meets that. And, and in fact, I think a lot of times that what happens in the church is we strive for righteousness between us and God. So in other words, we take the responsibility that was on Christ and we put it on our shoulders and that's a, that's a burden we can't bear. Where we should strive for righteousness is relationship with each other. And so when you look out onto a lost and broken world and you see that lost and broken world, does it break your heart? Do you see brokenness around you and go, ah, I, wa I want that to be reconciled. I want that to be fixed. Paul says that we, that through Christ, we are ministers of reconciliation. In other words, our job, you know, uh, the word for ministers uh, is deacon I in the New Testament. And so in the Gospels, when that deacon I word pops up, it's translated to serve, uh, to serve. So the idea of when it talks about Jesus ministering, it was Jesus helping meet the needs of those around him. So when, we, when Paul says that we are ministers of reconciliation, we are meeting the need that people have to be reconciled. That's, that's, that's one of our main jobs in Christ, is meeting the need people have to be reconciled. So that we hunger and we thirst for that. And I think when we understand that, that, that that's part of what 
Jesus wants us to long for, that if we live in a Christ-like way, that longing to be reconciled doesn't decrease, but it just increases. And so that helps us understand the other two of blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea that we're constantly looking around us and our heart is breaking for the parts of the world that aren't resonating with God. That we feel called to interject ourselves in that through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the picture of meekness. Of meekness. Um, and so uh, meekness is, comes from the Greek word praus or praus. And, uh, and the idea there uh, is really that um, of someone who's reasonable, rational, or reserved. Um, and so a lot of times, I think in the church, I, I read lots of different articles and lots of things where people try to take that and say, well, no, they're really talking about strength. So you could fight, but you don't, and that's meekness. You know, and that's, it's not really the idea of strength. It's the idea of when I'm facing something and I could choose strength or I could choose peace, I choose peace. That, that's what meekness is. And so um, Ignatius, he was the bishop of Antioch. So he was, he was the pastor at Antioch in 110 AD. Um, so you can think about it this way of Paul wrote most of his letters between like 40 and 50 AD. Um, John wrote 1 John right before he died in around 90 AD. So we have just after the, all the apostles die, you have Ignatius. And he wrote this. So he wrote this. He was on his way. He was traveling, or he was being traveled to Rome to face martyrdom. So he's about to be killed. And he wrote this. In response to their anger, be gentle. That word gentle is that, that word we use in the Greek for meek, praus. So in response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boast, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our forbearance, in other words, by our holding back, that we are their brothers and sisters. And let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. So as he's hauling off to be executed for teaching and preaching on Jesus, he says, don't be anger, be meek. Don't be angry, be meek. Um, and then the last of the kind of inward actions are the poor. Um, um, pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So when we look at that pure in heart, um, in the Greek, it's defined as, you know, um, the idea of that purity is purified by fire um, or a similitude. So in other words, it's an example of like a vine cleansed by pruning, so it's fitted to bear fruit. So in other words, is your heart positioned in a way where you can receive? Um, in other words, so a good way of, of understanding this for us, are you correctable? Are you positioned in yourself towards other to be correctable? Where Jimmy could come to me and, and go, Paul, you're really screwing this up, or you're really struggling here, or you know, we're just not doing what we need to do here. And my response is either like, whatever, dude, go away. Or like, ah, oh, you're right. Yeah, I'll try to work on that. 
you know, help me be, let me be accountable. Help me be accountable to you for that. And so are we positioned in our heart so that we can grow? So in other words, I love that. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That when we're correctable, all right, when we're cleansed by fire, that we are positioned to see God. I love that. So that leads us into um, kind of those outward ones. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So with these inward poor spirit, uh, meekness, those who hunger for righteousness, those who are pure in heart, what does that produce in us? Well, it produces those who are merciful. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. So if I have a, a pure heart, if I'm meek, if I have a poor spirit where I understand, I have a humility of my actions, then I have understanding of everything Christ has done for me. And what that does is it produces in me the desire to be merciful for others. So I've been forgiven much, so I can forgive much. And so when we have those inward actions or inward thoughts, inward patterns of Christ, it leads to Christ-like actions. That's why Jesus says you judge a tree by its fruit. All right, so if I'm not producing Christ-like actions, there's justification to challenge my inward Christ-likeness. If I say I'm Christ-like, but I'm angry all the time, I'm mean, I, I cut people off, I don't offer mercy, I'm prideful, then there's some legitness to, to coming to me and going like, man, I'm not sure you have a lot of Christ-likeness right now. What's going on? And so it's not that we judge others, but that we bring others into accountability so that we can follow Christ together. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, um, for they shall be called sons of God. Um, peacemaker is made up from two Greek words that means to make in harmony. So a, peace worker, a peacemaker is someone who makes harmony. In other words, can you walk into a contentious situation and bring harmony out of that? You know, so if you have a contentious situation at work, can you walk into that and bring harmony? You know, uh, do you have the ability in the middle of a fight with your spouse to stop and go, oh, I'm missing the mark here. Not that I'm right and you need to get on board with me, but to go like, oh, if I'm arguing, I'm not bringing peace. I'm missing the mark. I need to be a maker, all right? I need to be a maker of harmony in my life. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So who does this sound like? Who does it sound like that someone who comes onto the scene and is so concerned uh, about people, um, about cleansing our hearts, cleansing our minds, having rightful actions, that they tend to ruffle the feathers of everybody around them to the point where they cry out for them to be killed and murdered. You know, so we can see where when we follow the Beatitudes out, we get this amazing portrait of, of who Jesus was. So this is very early on in Matthew, but if you read the whole entirety of the book of Matthew, 
we see Jesus absolutely embodies these Beatitudes. That at every step we can go, man, if I want to be Christ-like, I cannot, cannot be Christ-like unless I am poor in spirit. Paul says that Jesus, uh, in Philippians, he said Jesus didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to come in the form of a man even to death on a cross. Right? Uh, We see that Jesus mourned. He mourned with those who mourned. We see that Jesus is meek. So I love that Jesus tells the disciples to go get swords, and then the minute Peter pulls out the sword to use it to keep Jesus from being hauled away to be crucified, Jesus chews him out and then heals the, the dude's ear that Peter cut off. So we see Jesus' meekness. We see Jesus' hunger and thirst for righteousness. We see that in how he deals with the, the, the woman caught in adultery. His gentleness in that. His, his coming into the situation and going like, oh man, we need to strive for righteousness for everybody involved here. We see Jesus offer mercy time and time again. We see Jesus come with the pureness of his heart. I love that we see Jesus, who is perfect, who is God in the flesh, who is without sin, spend so much time in communion alone in prayer with God. We see that in his pureness of heart. We see that Jesus comes to bring ultimate peace. Ultimate peace. In his forgiveness. And then we see Jesus handle persecution. Jesus doesn't handle persecution by rebelling against the Romans or rebelling against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but we see Jesus accept his fate. Why? Because you know the greater good that was to come through it. And so in each of these, we see that picture of Jesus. And I think this is just a little taste of what we're going to find in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be challenged. So I know as I look at the Beatitudes, as I look at these, um, there's a lot of areas that, that I'm not there. I'm not where Christ's attitude and his actions are. Um, but I know as I grow in him, that's where I need, that's, that's the groove I need to find. I can't do it without him. I can't do it without the Holy Spirit. You know, so as we go through this, I hope we're going to be challenged to evaluate how we think, how we live, how we interact with others. Um, because I want us to be good stewards of the grace that we've been given, uh, and I want us to grow in how we resemble Christ. Y'all stand to your feet. I want to pray for us. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, I, I just thank you. God, I thank you that you are the perfect example, Father. God, I thank you that, that you love us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you that we don't have to Uh, to earn it, uh, Father, that we don't get into heaven by our good works, um, but we get into heaven because you loved us and you pursued us. Father, I just pray that you would help us live a life in response to that. Uh, God, I thank you that we've been forgiven so much. Uh, Father, I just pray that you would help help us in our hearts and our actions this week. Father, that we would display your love, we would display your kindness, we would display your mercy um, to everyone we come across. Father, I just thank you for everything you've given, all the blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, remember we have uh, men's meeting Tuesday at 7 at Denny's. Y'all have a good week.